Got that feel good music, got that feel good, got that feel good music, got that feel good, got that feel good music, got that feel good, got that feel good music, got that feel good, got that feel good music, got that feel good, perfect. You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage, real letters they've written, letters they've received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we wish we could write. Erin Rodman reads a letter to her first Hollywood boss, which is deserving of a Hollywood script. Hello. This letter is a letter I have not sent. It is to my first Hollywood boss from a long time ago. And I want to say before I start, there is another Hollywood boss of mine that's in the audience tonight. And I just want you to know this is not you. (laughs) I will not invite you the night that I read the letter about you. (laughs) Dear first Hollywood boss, when I came to you as a bright-eyed, eager, and enthusiastic film student, hungry for real-world experience in my chosen profession, I will admit I knew very little about how Hollywood really worked. I showed up at your bungalow at Paramount Pictures, dazzled by my first entree to a real studio lot, and nothing made me happier than picking you up from your prime parking spot by the gate and driving you the challenging 25 feet to your office. (laughs) I bubbled with excitement to order and pick up your salad, ensuring the correct amount of tomatoes, five, and rejoiced in organizing the various juices and tinctures that stocked your mini fridge. I mean, who doesn't want a cold bottle of beetroot pulp during a hot flash? All part of the job. And in return, you afforded me entry to the rarefied world of Hollywood, and nothing made me happier than to be inside those walls. Thanks to you, I learned so many important things. For instance, I learned that even if you were on location in another country, reading the New York Times on set, and noticed an advertisement for a lingerie sale at Macy's in Manhattan, it was perfectly logical to ask me to go to the Macy's at the Beverly Center and demand the same prices for the same goods. The customer is always right after all. And even though it was my first day on the job and we'd never actually met in person, having me describe multiple bra designs to you over the phone meant that you clearly trusted me like a close girlfriend right out of the gate. (laughs) There are no boundaries between us, I thought. The sky's the limit. This was further affirmed when, on your first Saturday back in Los Angeles, you invited me to your house to help you with a computer issue. I arrived at your Hancock Park mansion, giddy to be invited inside so soon. The housekeeper let me in and pointed me towards your bedroom. My heart pounded with anticipation of our soon-to-be best friendship because clearly I was special to see inside your inner sanctum. I knocked and entered, and I remember smiling as you waved from the bed, though we didn't speak, as you were on the phone and smoking a joint. (laughs) Though you never actually looked at me, you helpfully pointed at your laptop on a desk in the corner, and I got to work. I examined the screen where a blinking cursor indicated your AOL login required a password. Having memorized it early on, I entered it and watched as your email inbox filled the screen. I coughed, embracing my contact high, and waited, discreetly avoiding reading what was surely important communications from studio heads, celebrities, and your private gymnastics coach. Could that really be all that was required? Could it really simply be that you didn't know your email password and didn't think to write it down or ask for it over the phone? But I knew this was all part of my education. What's a Saturday if not another work day? 
When you waved me towards the door, I think I actually bowed. That's how lucky I felt to be so close to so capable and professional a multitasker. Before I knew it, you were back on set in a faraway location. The office was quiet, absent of the bustle your presence assured. But then a phone call with an important and crucial mission. Old friends of yours were coming to the studio to drop off a package, and you had one for them in return. The package was then to be shipped to you again in another country. Happy to do this latest bidding, I picked up Earl and Francis, friendly aging hippies, and brought them back to the office. Francis dug in her purse and handed me the package, a Ziploc baggie containing a hefty and lovingly harvested marijuana bud. Francis smiled as she accepted her package and returned a slim envelope of cash. When Earl and Francis were gone, I and I began to package the herbal cocktail for international FedEx shipping. <laughs> I was reminded that in order to prevent the drug dogs from catching the odor, it was best to use a lot of tinfoil and a glass jar. Good to know. <laughs> boy, oh boy, you've never seen so much bubble wrap in one box. I admit, I was sweating a little, envisioning an interrogation room and a young life cut short by federal crime. But as your soldier on the cinema battlefield, it was my privilege to answer the call of duty. So, dear first Hollywood boss, I want to thank you for a lifetime of lessons packed into one year. You prepared me for the realities of our industry and gave me a trove of experiences to draw from ever since. From the bottom of my heart, I am grateful. And I want you to know how truly sorry I was several years later to see that you were busted at that airport for possession. That would never have happened on my watch. Best wishes, Aaron. P.S. I can't wait to tell you about my second Hollywood boss. He asked if he could call me mommy. Mark Miller reads a letter dedicated to his elusive soulmate. Dear future soulmate. <laughs> Forgive me for not using your actual name. You see, we haven't met yet. Tell you what, how about I just refer to you as Julie? I've always liked that name, and I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up having it. You know, it feels strange expressing my deepest personal thoughts to a woman I haven't even seen, but I'm making an exception for you because after all, we will eventually be together for the rest of our lives. Plus, just because we haven't met yet doesn't mean we can't share our feelings, right? This way, when we finally do meet, we'll be that much farther along in the relationship. It'll be like our seventh date. Just think of the intimacy. After many years of not being able to find you, Julie, well, two years to be exact, the frustrations of the endless search started to get to me. It seemed like I was right on track for turning into the male equivalent of the old spinster with seven cats and a passion only for crocheting sweaters for friends and relatives and their pets lucky enough to have found relationships. I felt myself beginning to experience the seven stages of no soulmate grief. First, there was shock, the horrifying realization that we may never meet. It seemed as though every woman I met had a giant neon, not your soulmate sign atop her head. Oh sure, some of them were attracted to me, and it wouldn't have been difficult to have comforted myself with a series of meaningless, superficial sexual encounters. But that's not what I wanted. That's not me. Ultimately, that's not even satisfying in case my mother is listening. 
Denial followed shock. All evidence to the contrary, Julie, I informed anyone who asked about it that it was simply a question of time and luck before I'd meet my soulmate. Those to whom I'd say this would nod and give me a half smile, attempting to be supportive, but oh yes, I could see the pity in their eyes. It was the exact same look my parents gave me when I informed them that rather than going to law school, I was going to give stand-up comedy a try. As I moved into the bargaining stage, I attempted to cope with my loss of soulmate hope by making a deal with God. Lord, if you allow me to meet my soulmate, I'll become a better person. I'll attend temple more often. I'll be kinder to people. I'll make donations to charity, even if they don't send the personalized self-sticking address labels. <laughs> I'll stop taking your name in vain when the driver in front of me is too slow to make it through the yellow light. I'll subscribe to PBS. I'll floss. Of course, the guilt stage was no big shocker to me as I was quite experienced in that arena. It took the form of multiple if-onlys. If only all the relationship wisdom I'd read about and received from others had sunk in. If only I hadn't turned Kathy down just because when she laughed, she sounded like a goat. <laughs> if only Pam hadn't caught me trying on her underwear. <laughs> it was research. Okay, I was just curious. Oh, all right, it was a very stressful period in my life and there was no chocolate around. <laughs> it's no wonder I reached the anger stage. I was angry at life for forcing me to keep paying monthly fees to online dating websites rather than the much easier and far more economical method of simply accidentally bumping into my soulmate in an elevator or supermarket with appropriate Phil Collins or Elton John soundtrack music, just like in the movies. I was angry at myself for not having developed whatever relationship skills might turn me into a babe magnet. I was angry at my parents for not having given me more superficial genetic gifts and fewer tendencies to self-analyze. <laughs> Depression followed closely upon anger, Julie. Look what you did to me and you didn't even know me. I lost interest in meeting my soulmate, much less dating at all. I sounded as though all the life and energy had been drained from my voice. I slumped. I couldn't even motivate myself to call a depression hotline. And here's how I realized I was truly deeply depressed. I watched daytime TV. <laughs> Three days in a row. Do you know how deeply depressed a man has to be to watch daytime TV? Finally, I became resigned to the fact that some people just aren't meant to meet their soulmates, and apparently I was one of them. The few, the lonely, the man doomed for the rest of his life to face a restaurant maitre d' who, while the Muzak is playing Roy Orbison's Only the Lonely, <laughs> looks at him pityingly and asks, table for one? And then shines a spotlight on him as all eyes follow him to his solitary table, offering looks of sympathy as the waiter removes one of the play settings. <laughs> and finally, I cry out in anguish, please, for the love of God, look away. I am alone and hideous. <laughs> so how, you may wonder, did things turn out relatively well? How did I finally arrive at the last of the seven stages of no soulmate grief, the stage of acceptance and hope? Well, Julie, you see, there's some good news. I met someone, finally, which to me pretty much constitutes proof of God's existence. The walking on water thing, nah. Changing water into wine, uh-uh. Finding a woman who I like as much as she likes me, bingo. And I really like her. I even got rid of all my chocolate for her. 
Well, not totally. It's wrapped and securely placed in the third cabinet on the left. You never know. Is this woman my soulmate, Julie? Who knows? At this point, I'm not even sure what it would feel like to have a soulmate. I mean, come on, her name isn't even Julie. Perhaps that's a red flag. It's just that maybe if you find someone you really like who seems to like you, is pretty and smart and doesn't seem to mind your flaws and smells good and doesn't even bring up the subject of restraining orders, that's soulmate enough for any man, even me. Now, if you'll excuse me, Julie, I need to go floss and get ready for temple. Best wishes, Mark. Thank you. John Piricello was tasked with improvising an angry letter to the editor of the made-up magazine, Iguana Fancy. And we think he knocked it out of the park. Dear sirs, I would just like to start by saying that I have been a loyal subscriber to your magazine for quite some time now. I have three iguanas myself. Their names are Sheldon, Julie, and Julie. Because I like that name. But I was very, very upset to find in your latest issue that on the cover of your magazine was not an iguana at all, but a Gila monster. And I would just like to say to you, sirs, that those of us that are fans and aficionados of iguanas take offense to such behavior. Because a Gila monster is nothing like an iguana. Is it? Perhaps you don't know this. Perhaps you don't know that there is iguana, uh, big, there is Gila monster month, monthly iguana. Ooh, I should change that. Gila monster. There we go, yes. Perhaps you don't know about this because perhaps you don't get out much because perhaps you don't, aren't really, in fact, a fan like I am. Maybe that's what's going on. Is it possible, sirs, that you are coasting these days with your rag? Is it possible that you have lost the love that is iguana love? Is it possible that you are just phoning it in in your old age? The magazine has been coming out monthly for three years now. You must all be terribly, terribly bored over there. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, there are those of us out receiving your, your magazine every month who are not bored, who are not phoning it in, who start every day loving for their iguanas, feeding them, giving them water, naming them. <laughs> because iguanas are important to us. Perhaps you've lost touch with that. Perhaps you are just in it for the money now. Perhaps you have done what all institutions do, and you're just worried about keeping your doors open tomorrow. Perhaps you don't even have iguanas anymore. I wonder if I were to stomp down there to your little office, if you would even have any iguanas or anything to feed them or any water or anything at all. Perhaps you're just all sitting around counting your money. 
I would not be surprised. Well, I'm not going to do that because I don't have a car. But if I did, I would come straight down there and look in your office, and I'm sure that what I would find would be a bunch of jaded, money-grubbing, former iguana lovers who are just living off the backs of real iguana aficionados who don't have the love, who've lost it, and who are just, just, I hate all of you. But I'm going to forgive you. Because that's what an iguana would do. <laughs> Yours truly, Sheldon Julie. Peggy Etra recently found herself on a text war between two sisters she had never met. Seeing no reason to alert them of her presence, she spent three weeks silently observing their peculiar brand of crazy. Dear Terry and Sneeze, oh ladies, what a gift you bestowed upon me July 28th when you inadvertently included me in your text conversation. <laughs> Little did I know that you would provide me with a very entertaining three weeks. I counted no less than five exchanges that extolled how Terry was so there for you, Sneeze. 28 I love you's, three spiritual catchphrases, and the emojicons. Oh, so many emojicons. <laughs> and thank you, Sneeze, for including your pre-op photos of your nose. I believe the option for rhinoplasty was indeed the right choice. <laughs> The love flowing between you two was palpable, heartwarming, exemplary, really. Plans were made for you, Terry, and your son, Huck, to take Mike, Sneeze's son, to Six Flags for an outing of fun while Sneeze had her procedure. Eight more text exchanges on how much fun the boys were having. It was truly idyllic. The first fissure appears 44 texts in when Mike lost his wallet at Six Flags. <laughs> Terry, you wrote, uh, hey Sneeze, Mike lost his wallet at Six Flags. He didn't realize it till we got home and I had given him $230 and unfortunately that was in the wallet. I mean, that's all I could afford. I love you. Well, did you feel it, ladies? Two texts later, Terry, you again unsatisfied that Sneeze hadn't jumped at the mention of your out-of-pocket expense of $230, wrote this. Yeah, I think he's really bummed about the cash. I mean, me too. But maybe someone will turn it in. You never know. Stranger things have happened. And Sneeze, you in fact never mention your sister's outlay of cash. But then you discover that Mike has not only lost his wallet, but that his phone has turned up missing. And Sneeze, you wrote, uh, yeah, Mike left his phone there, either in the boys' room or on a shelf, or maybe, I don't know, in the car. Can you find it? And the fissure grew a little wider. But neither of you had any awareness of it. Terry, you dug in. There isn't a phone here. 
I put it in his bag. I did a double check of the house before he left. I walked to his room and I showed him all his things and how he should put them away. I put the phone in the tote bag and he didn't use it after that. It may have fallen out somewhere at your house. It's not anywhere here. You might want to help him get his stuff organized because he seems to be losing a lot of stuff. He just needs to have a more organized backpack maybe. That would prove helpful. Oh dear. Should, Terry, you threw out the should directive. What were you thinking? Sneeze, feeling the need to defend her cub, responded, okay, well that is part of Noonan's syndrome, so that's never gonna change. <laughs> now, now ladies, right here would have been the time to take a moment and realize that you're dealing with a child who has some learning difficulties and who could use some extra love and guidance and to tap into the Buddhist quotes you are so fond of. But where's the drama in that? Terry, when you flung back, okay, sneeze, got it. I'm sorry about the wallet, but the phone is somewhere. I put it in the bag. So wherever he dumped his bag out, check that room. And the passive aggression became aggressive. Terry, was it necessary to say, dude, I paid for everything. He lost his money. You should have told me he was going to lose his money. And sneeze, maybe if you had taken a breath before replying, Terry, we have had many conversations about Mike and his issues, and I assumed that you would be the adult on the case, holding the money and stuff. Don't you hold Huck stuff? Terry, you must have really wanted to draw blood when you said, uh, no, I don't hold Huck's stuff. I'm the mom. Mike did not want me to hold his wallet. He wanted to be in charge. Sneezed your response. Oh, it's okay, like it's done. I don't give a damn about the, f I only care about the damn phone. Now that seemed like it might bring it down a notch, but instead, the fissure cracked wide open and the magma spewed forth and Terry, you raged with, the fact that you are questioning me right now is ridiculous. Don't you send your son to spend time with me if you think I am not responsible enough to take care of him. If you think that I am not capable, well then shame on you. Why would you send your son to spend time with someone that is not capable? I just wanted to tell you that your son was inappropriate he did a lot of uncomfortable things while he was here. <laughs> Sneeze, deflected with, oh, give it up, it's not worth it. But Terry, you were so impassioned, you needed to plunge in the knife. You sick fucking bitch, Mike is angry. Mike explained to Huck that he had a vagina section on his phone, and he showed a picture to Huck. Mike said that it was his girlfriend. Then Mike said, that bitch and those tits are mine. And Huck said, yuck. Well, Mike wanted to kill Huck. And Huck had to hide in my room and lock the door because Mike wanted to kill him with drumsticks. Oh. I can go on and on. I have 20 of those stories and I have proof of them and how inappropriate your son was. But do you know what I did? I took your son and gave him the best day of his life because <laughs> that's what I said I would do. So I kept my word. <laughs> Sneeze, your retort came swiftly. Okay, okay, I call bullshit. Mike has never done anything to anyone.
Huck took his phone and looked without permission. That's what happened. Look, you're not going to get the truth from Huck, so just let it go. I know my child very, very well. He is not stupid. He is very well spoken. <laughs> and then there was silence. You made me wait 24 hours. <laughs> and then a photo sans bandages arrived. And may I say, oh, sneeze, good choice. You do know how to pick out a perky nose that suits your face. Terry, your quick response of, awesome, appeared to be all that was needed to resurrect your relationship. So now we were back to the, you're great. No, you're great. And it was all tucked into this love fest was the admission that Huck had indeed taken and hidden Mike's phone. Because boys, <laughs> just be boys. So my friends, and I believe we can now call each other friends, you both need to take responsibility for your ongoing parade of crazy. <laughs> Remember, you are the mother of these two boys, and they need you. So grow the fuck up. <laughs> Namaste. Peggy. Oh, P.S. I will not be sending you this because Thankfully, I don't have your address. My name is Jane Entwistle, and I am the producer of To Whom It May Concern, and I read a letter to the graduate school where I learned just how far I was willing to go for higher learning. Dear JFK, the graduate school, not the fallen president. I think it's high time we reviewed our relationship and your everlasting impression on me. It's only fair since I owe all my future earnings to the debt incurred in your hallowed halls. Actually, there aren't any hallowed halls in your school. Just dim passageways lined with people meditating, men wearing skirts and diagrams of the chakras. Okay, that's not fair. They're not called skirts, they're called sarongs. My specific department where I went to school, fell apart, talked about it, and finally graduated was called Holistic Studies. And my degree was in counseling psychology. I'm recapping in case you have forgotten who I am, which is likely since we were all in an altered state for the majority of my attendance. <laughs> I am grateful for my education. I really am. For the children I was fortunate enough to work with in a therapeutic capacity for my personal growth initiated by the millions of hours of personal therapy, individual and group, I was required to attend. Sincerely, I am grateful. My beef is with that practicum, that weekend course, that freak show of experiential learning. I signed up because what college student doesn't want to spend the weekend at a hostel in the Marin Headlands? Gorgeous beaches, tall, billowy seagrass, blue sky and clouds and fresh air, a welcome respite from the rigors of college life in the East Bay of San Francisco. My classmates and I were giddy and excited and, and piled into our bunk beds that first night, anticipating a day of wondrous learning on the warm marine sand. Early the next morning, we arrived at the chosen beach spot and immediately my anxiety set in. 
We're going to be at the beach all day. We'll eat lunch here. Where will we go to the bathroom? And where will everyone wash their hands? <laughs> and once that dark horse starts galloping, I have no way to rein it in. It just starts picking up speed and running in circles and neighing in my ear until I want to chop off everyone's dirty, dirty hands. you will be relieved to know that I am no longer a practicing therapist. <laughs> With dirty pee hand anxiety, gently murmuring in my ear, we were given our first assignment. We were to move silently and fluidly amongst each other, making gentle physical contact. I was doing okay, trying to be present, breathing through the touching with those I knew had already peed somewhere in the grass. <laughs> when Sarong Boy came wafting over, he was tanned and bare-chested with long flowing hair and wore only a colorful sarong. He somehow managed to maneuver himself, so he rolled over my back, and I felt his loose balls under that sarong <laughs> slide across my shoulder blades. I wanted to run screaming into the ocean so I could scrub away the feeling of his balls on my back. <laughs> but we were a goddamn holistic study school. That kind of self-preservation was just not done. After lunch, a grueling experience for me due to the dirt and hands and whatnot. We gathered around and the teacher took a deep breath and said, now let's just get here. <laughs> I wanted to stand up and scream, I'm here, I'm here, I'm right fucking here. I managed to stay where I was and was relieved to learn the next exercise was done alone, lying on our bellies on the inviting sand. I could close my eyes and listen to the waves and finally relax. The exercise involved what is called intrinsic movement. The first movements we all make. We were to travel back in time to our infant self and explore the first movement, which is sucking. I lay on my stomach, thankful that sucking is a relatively small movement, as all 40 of us were lying spread out on a public beach on a Saturday morning in the ever so popular Marin County. I closed my eyes and sucked. <laughs> Nothing. I could hear fellow students quietly weeping next to me. <laughs> I was here and I was sucking and fucking nothing. After what felt like two hours of sucking, we moved on to the next intrinsic movement, rocking. Still laying on our bellies, we were to rock back and forth, as babies do when they are attempting to rock themselves forward. I stopped sucking and started rocking. <laughs> laying on my belly on the sand. And realized, 
Holy hell, it feels like I'm humping the sand. Above me, I heard local residents stepping gingerly over and amongst the 40 humping students, their dogs snuffling our hair and tromping on our backs, their confused owners trying to guess at what we were doing. Is it art, Frank? Beats the hell out of me, looks like some weird sex thing. That was the last straw. That dark horse of anxiety dragged me up out of the sand and along the beach at breakneck speed until I found a giant dune. I scrambled to the top of it and then buried myself in the sand up to my neck where I remained fast asleep in a sort of traumatized coma for the rest of the day. You gave me credit for that practicum the teacher apparently not noticing my absence among the seal-like bodies lying prostrate on the beach. I feel that I deserved it, if for nothing else, enduring sarong boys' balls on my back. <laughs> Granted, your approach to learning was from the inside out. Sex therapy class, a prime example, where we had to watch an industrial film from the 1970s of people masturbating. The class collectively gasping when the man on the bed pleasuring himself simultaneously stroked his purring cat with his foot. <laughs> not the cat, not the cat, the students cried. Well, I want what's on the inside out. The beach, the sucking, the rocking, the masturbation, the let's just get here, sarong boys' balls, I want it gone. Perhaps I will include this letter with my next student loan payment. And little by little, I can mail back to you all of the kumbaya, every last drop of it, keeping only the self-awareness. Blessings. Jane. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater in Los Angeles, California. The musician for this episode is Sheldon Botler. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or Stitcher, so you never miss a single letter. And if you have a letter you'd like to submit, even if you live far away, because we'll read it for you, visit www.readyourletter.com. The Letter Show just celebrated its one-year anniversary, and we wanted to thank you for listening and for sending in your letters. me from the darkness of my shell. You're my friend when I...